I think inevitably you have to have begun with a big idea. The big idea may or may not be fully, you know, thought through in advance. But unless you've got one, I mean, you're just going to be fumbling around writing your 300 words a day or something and wasting everyone's time, including your own. Hello and welcome to Ears Wide Open, a literary podcast that is a project of The Open Book, the world's most beautiful second-hand bookshop at 201 Ponsonby Road. Tonight we have got Ian Weddy with us, poet, novelist, art critic and notable figure in New Zealand literature. He'd probably give me a bad look for saying that. He said simple introductions are the best. It's so nice to have you here, Ian. Hi. Hi, hi. Nice to be here. How are you? I'm fine. I'm good. Thank you. So you're going to start off by reading us something, I believe. Yes, if you would like me to. We would love you to. Wouldn't we, listeners? I'm listening. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I'll I'll read... Um, I'll read something that um, a friend, John Reynolds, the artist, asked me to write for him, partly because I like writing, you know, to requests, you know, to invitations like that, um, you know, for weddings or birthday parties or 21sts or whatever. And John was doing a book on Colin McCann and his time getting lost in the Botanical Gardens in Sydney. And he did a big series of paintings and he asked me, these are going in a book, so he asked me if I'd write something. And so this is it. And it's called McCann's Defile. And so, Colin, I, can't, I should go back. And you can leave this hesitation in because it's all germane. This is really just a walk along Ponsonby Road, K Road, and down through Myers Park. Perfectly appropriate okay. for the setting. All right. And so, Colin, I cast off in my frail craft of words my craft of frail words, of crafty words, into the defile of three lamps, where struck by sunshine on the florist's striped awning and the autumn leaves outside all saints, as you did before fully waking in Waitakere to look at the elegant pole kauri in dewy light, I defile my sight with closed eyes and so see better when I open them the sky tower pricking a pale blue heaven like Raphael's in Madonna of the Meadows, or the scumbled sky of Buttercup Fields Forever, where there is a constant flow of light and we are born into a pure land through Ahipara's blunt gate, a swift swipe of pale blue paint on Shadbolt's battered booze bar where bards bullshitted among the kauri. Gaunt cranes along the city skyline avert their gazes towards the gulf away from babblers at Bambina, breakfast baskers outside Dizengoff, some pretty shaky dudes outside White Cross, beautiful blooms and buckets at Barna Brothers, open for 80 years, Karen Walker's window looking fresh and skitey across Ponsonby Road, my charming deft dentist at Lumino's, most of South Asia jammed into one floor at the food court, Western Park, where wee Bella bashed her head on some half-buried neoclassical nonsense, the great view shaft to not foe munga foe, and then turn left into the dandy defile of K Road, where you make your presence felt yet again, Colin, through the window of stark white 
in Building 19GW13, where dear John Reynolds has mapped your sad Sydney derives and defiles across the road from Hera Bridal's windows, all dressed up in white broderie anglaise like lovely frothy brushstrokes, or the curdled clouds and words you dragged into the light, fantastic, along beaches and the blackness that was all you saw when you opened your eyes sometimes, like the bleary early morning thirsty dogs and weary hookers a bit further along my walk. I love the pink pathway below the K Road overbridge, a liquid dawn rivulet running down towards Waitamata's riprap, but also looking a bit smashed washing hung out on the balcony above Carmen Jones, and over the road from Art Space and Michael Lett, etc., there's El Sizzling Lomito, Mustache, Popped, and Love Bucket. The little Turkish cafe has $5 beers. It's like a multiverse botanical garden round here. You could lose yourself in the mad babble of it, like the botanical gardens at Woolamaloo, with the cluster-fucking rut-season fruit bats screaming blue murder. But it's peaceful again, down Myers Park. The mind empties and fills like a lung breathing. The happy chatter of kids swinging. And my memory of you, Colin, sitting alone and forlorn on a bench. Must have been about 1966. Contemplating the twitchy cigarette between your fingers. As if it divined the buried waters of why Horotiu, or the thoughts that flow beneath thought in the mind's defile at dawn when you open your eyes and see that constant flow of light among the trees. There's something magical about poetry or fiction uh, that is set in places we know. I think so, yeah. What is that? I don't know. I think it's because, uh, for me what is the most familiar is often the most magical. And of course it's it's you know it's fun to write about strange places, foreign cities, you know, different kinds of encounters. But a place that you know every cigarette butt on the footpath of, you know, it, it it's it's got a different kind of magic. And I think too when um there are place names along the strips that you know. And actually, they're not just the names of places, as if you're Google mapping. You know, they they have all that extra weight of meaning. So for me, a word like ahipara, you know, the big blunt blob of a thing uh, at the bottom of 90 Mile Beach, for me, that just has such enormous, I don't know, such an enormous... Um, collection of ideas and memories. There's that amazing photo of the angel in the cemetery at Ahipada. Yeah. Isn't there? That's um and the name's gone out of my head, you know, the New Zealand photographer. Uh, yes, it's gone out of my head too. That's okay. <laughs> right in listeners, you all know. <laughs> yeah, we all know. We, we know. all know. Yeah. Uh you know, there's that book I think it's on the cover of, the grade book and there's the beautiful angel at yeah. Ahipada standing <clears throat> over the cemetery, yeah. you know, which is really an incredible image and all these things come to us. Yeah. And and I'm looking at the New Zealand fiction shelf here and thinking, well, there's quite a lot there, but still to come across ourselves in fiction or in poetry is still more unusual for New Zealanders than usual unless you make a special effort. Do you think it? so? Yeah. 
Yes, I think that's really true for, so it's probably not true for you or me, you know, but for people who read, I mean, people come in here and they, you know, they don't go straight to the New Zealand fiction right. shelf and it's that's ah, a very small proportion of what we sell. That explains my sales figures. That's where you first went wrong. Right, Ian. yeah. You should have been born in New York or... Well, you know, I must admit, it's probably still the case that I read far more, far more in foreign literature than I do in New Zealand literature. But I read a lot more now than I used to. And why is that? I think when I was young, it just didn't interest me. You know, I had a thing about it. I really didn't give a damn about whatever it was that was happening in New Zealand. And you get over that. I mean, it was sort of a cockiness or a... And I, I was also... I had a grumpy attitude to what I thought of as nationalistic kind of writing. And I misunderstood a lot of it very badly. I had to come back to it and read it and then go, oh, okay. All right, now that's different. And what was different? Like what, what is it that appeals to you about New Zealand literature now? Oh, it's specific in ways, and also it's not. I mean, all literature has certain commonalities, wherever it is, and certain very distinctive qualities, wherever it is. And I think when I was a young reader... Buck. ...and writer, young <laughs> buck, you know, I, I had... I had I had very strong, very greedy reading impulses. And they were in, in French. They were the new American writers of the time, sort of post-beat writers, Robert Creeley's and all sorts of people, John Ashbery and some of the older, you know, big guys like Wallace Stevens. I read everything. I was obsessed and used to get overstressed if I couldn't get hold of the latest small magazine which wasn't that easy then. So, you know, there's all of that, and I think it's part of a development process. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot about, you know, what was happening in writing at the time. They, there were vanguards in other places that weren't so much here. And there's a truth in that, isn't there, in that now we're so connected to everything if we want to be. You can find yeah, what's easy. going on. It's not, you know, it's not photocopied small magazines or That's right. things you waited for months to arrive in the post. Yeah. So uh, mm. I'm going to ask the questions I sent you out of order because oh. I want to ask you then about that young man that you were, that grumpy young man. I was reading your first your first book, right? Homage, homage to Matisse. Oh. Homage to Matisse. Yeah, I mean, a little pamphlet, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So some of that's online, and I love the boldness Ah. and the chutzpah of this 25-year-old saying, let me write about, you know, Matisse and write to you, and so out of New Zealand and so kind of bold. And then half a century later, your poetry is obviously, you know, very different, and you are very different. So I wanted to ask you, what's the difference between a young poet and an old poet? And... (sighs) Also, what did that bold young man do that you look back and think, oh, my God, that's incredible? I don't think, I very seldom think, oh, my God, that's incredible. I'd always had an interest in, in art, or well, I had from a, from a fairly young age. And, you know, when I was a kid, we travelled a lot, and I, I went to a lot of places because of what my father was doing. And then subsequently left New Zealand, you know, when I finished university, left New Zealand fairly swiftly. And, and went away for quite a, quite a while in different places. And I think, for me, it had been a long wait already to see the real thing. And so, as a kid, I'd been trotted around some galleries and I'd been taken to cathedrals. And I was moved, in a way, as a 12-year-old or a 10-year-old can be, 
But by the time I was 20, was I 25? 25, well, the record shows. Yeah, I was, I was younger show. than that when I left New Zealand. And I, I, I just went everywhere looking for the things that I had longed to see. And I'd, I'd looked and looked and looked at Matisse, for example, and it was partly because I had a friend, an artist called David Armitage, who was here for a while, subsequently went back to an Australian artist who then went to live in the UK. And he showed me Matisse. He, he was crazy about Matisse. And I caught the bug. And I remember the experience of seeing an exquisite little painting by Matisse, Still Life with Oysters. And it just had so much appetite for life in it. And it was also just such a beautiful thing and you know that's all I was writing about really was just one of those encounters it wasn't I don't think it was a particularly complicated event and in its way I don't think it was even very different from you know the other things that I'd encountered and and had been writing you know for a while by then I had written about but it it, it was the one that I chose for that first little book mm. And so what would you say now in your current, you know, status as, as an older poet, what yeah. would you say back to that young poet that you didn't know then that you know now? Oh, I, I don't think I have any advice for him whatsoever. I mean, I think the great thing about young like that is, um, is that you're full of yourself, you're full of overconfidence. Um, you know, I had... You know, I mean, I could rebuke my young self for having too much attitude and for being too cocky, but what would be the point of that? He wouldn't listen. No, he wouldn't have listened, and he probably would have given me some smarts back. And, you know, the great thing about being young and intensely curious and and probably quite overconfident is that you just do that stuff. And I don't regret it for a moment. You know, it's like regretting being young. Why would you do that? Yeah, I look back at some of my early writing, and my, my first book has this very long sort of historical poem in it, and I think, I would never, have, I would never, you know, I'm not as far along in my journey towards older poet as you are, but I think I would never think to do that now. I wouldn't have the, right. the, the just the brazenness to think, oh, well, I'll just sit down and, you know, steal all these bits of history and jam them together into a poem, and I look back and think, oh, well, that was, you know, that was an interesting time. Yeah, and I doubt if you'll stop doing that, though. I can't imagine that you would just stop and become more modest in your practice. I think deeper, so yeah. more, you know, more internal and yeah. less flashy. Ah, okay. For me. Right. Um, yeah, well, flashy. I think, you know, flashy is as flashy does, and I think I quite wanted to be flashy when I was younger, came with the, kind of came with the brief. Mm. But now it just doesn't really occur to me that I should or shouldn't be. You know, if it appears flashy, well, it's because... It's got some quality that is arresting in some way. That's a good thing. If not, too bad. Take it or leave it. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your career has been fiction, poetry, and art criticism, and many other things, I'm sure, but those are three big bodies of mm. work that you've got. If you think of yourself as a writer and as a thinker, where are you most at home? Where is your most true home among those genres or those activities oh they're all i mean they all overlap in in certain ways and i mean i don't think of myself so much as an art critic although i did you know i made my living as a 
critic for Evening Post for a few years, more just someone who was interested in it and wrote about it. And doing that really, for me, writing essay-type material and thinking about it and and finding ways of articulating what are really very sensory experiences, um, that's something that I would also be doing when I wrote poetry. And in a different way, it's something that I'd also be doing when I write fiction. They all overlap. And I think, you know, what's important about the overlaps is what is what the common affect is, you know. Um, what is the emotional substance of the thing? And then, of course, around that, there are a bunch of very different um, practices, if you like, intellectual frameworks, the kind of objective rather than the subjective part of it. I mean, for me, writing poetry is certainly the most demanding because it's too easy sometimes. If you know, it can be too I easy. I always say poetry is for the lazy among us. Well, <laughs> but yeah. that doesn't sound like you. No. That's me talking about me. No, it's certainly not. I mean, I think you know, it it can be easy to write poetry, and there's nothing wrong with that. If you have you know the an impulse facility. to write something down quickly and not think about it too hard, and and write something nice and fresh, great. But for me, it's always been, it's always been very demanding, and it's demanding because it should carry a a real wallop you know it should have a it should have an impact not necessarily an obvious one or a a kind of brutal one but it should have an impact and it should do it with very little if possible so that it is a very powerful form a very powerful medium i think so it? yeah i mean the sort poets, of homeopathic uh, yeah, it could be, yes. The less you have, the more powerful it yeah, is. Yeah, I think so, often, yes. Although I do like expansive writing, you know. You know, writing about art is, is for me, is an enormously challenging as well. What was your favourite art writing project that you did? Oh, I think the big book I did on Bill Culbert. And why? What was so great Well, because about it that? had to be so comprehensive. And because having, I mean, having got, having having given myself the task, having, you know, built that relationship with Bill and got the support to do it, you know, it's a huge task and his archive in London is enormous. Well lit, though, I imagine. Well, it's pretty well lit, a bit cobwebby here and there. But, you know, I had to get through that material and do it in a very disciplined kind of way and understand what it was that had been going on through that very, very long career. And um, it was it was such fun. I mean, Bill is good company. And also I did spend a fair bit of time in Coan in Provence where second houses, second homers, with work there in another studio. And, you know, it's not such a it's bad not awful no, to have to do that. Not such a bad thing to sit in the in the in the nice yard out under the fig tree at Kwan and and chew the fat with Bill and take little furtive notes meanwhile. So uh, poetry being hard work leads me on, I think, to a question about form that I oh. had for you, which is that a lot of your poetry has form around it in the sense of a traditional form that's recognisable and that you've worked to stay within. Mm. What is the pleasure or the um, interest of form for you? 
Well, I mean, I think <clears throat> I think um, there is no poetry without form, for a start, and very often what appears to be not formless, but 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 very flexible or very supple or very conversational, you know, cascade of lines down a page, resembling speech, perhaps. I mean, I think inevitably, if it's if it's good, I mean, if we can use a big word like that, if go please go right ahead. We're all yeah, in favour. If of it's if it's good, judgment of quality it's on good, this podcast. It, it will yeah. have it will have um, it will have formal qualities to do with rhythm, to do with breath, uh, to do with the appearance of the thing on the page, to do with the way it. It orchestrates thought to do with the way it gathers an emotion by a line swing from one end of one around to an. I mean, it's if it's good, it will be doing all those things. I think what interests me about what you've called traditional forms is that many of them have been refined and refined and refined to do that particular kind of work well. And so they're a well shaped case for a certain job, aren't they? Oh, yeah, and they've been tested. And so, for example, the sonnet, which, you know, has various ways of writing them, it's a very old form, probably, you know, a sung form originally, troubadours, and it developed then as a way to shape argument so that there is a succession of statements which have, which imply a, a, um, a thought process in the way they're rhymed and then a concluding couplet in a Shakespearean form where it, you have to have the argument in such a state that it wraps. And now, you know, we don't necessarily talk like that in our everyday speech, but if we're thinking and talking, then the way we do it will almost certainly, if you're not just fumbling your way along as I am at the moment a bit, um, it will have a shape to it and it will have a rhetorical conclusion if you're trying to make your case. And the sonnet is a form that does that. It also is and has been often a wonderful lyric shape. My model was Shakespeare. Well, whose model isn't you know? Shakespeare? And there are other other sonnet models to be had, but I mean Shakespeare... Who cares for them, though, really? Yeah, like, well, you... yeah Shakespeare, <laughs> Shakespeare for me, the, the sonnets I read and read and read back and forth and over and over. They're also so mysterious because they contain all sorts of codes and and there are life stories that are never quite divulged in there and just so fascinating. And it's partly because of that rhetorical shape, that argument that is repeated over and over and over, and yet you're never allowed to come really to a conclusion. I, I enjoy very much when I do manage to get something out in a form, I enjoy the sense of craft attached to it, the yeah. satisfaction of having, you know, landed something well that has a certain you know, one has not done it as Shakespeare would do it, obviously. No. But you think, oh well, I haven't, I haven't absolutely balls this up. It's recognisable as what I was intending it to be, and I love that kind of feeling when it feels like what you were trying to say snaps into place in the form yeah. that you were aiming at. Yeah, and I think too there are forms that are that are just lovely, elastic, um, rhythmical, um, discursive devices. Um, um, 
you know, blank verse, as Wallace Stevens wrote, pages and pages and pages in his later work. It just has a lovely ease to it. And yet it's absolutely, you know, in terms of the, 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 the metrics or the syllable count, it is um, pages and pages of and it's it is then like a very well crafted, for instance, piece of furniture or something, then isn't it? Where you you look at it and you don't think, oh, that's taken hours to make, and it's that's where the joins are. No, and, feels, you know, you just think, oh, oh, that looks like a perfect yeah, chair. It you feels know. effortless. That's and right. I think in the case of that kind of, I mean, John Newton, for example, here in New Zealand, writes brilliant blank verse, and you don't notice he's done it. And that's just a great don't. trick. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? yeah. The opposite of flashy. Yes, not flashy at all. Poetry and fiction. Mm. Well, you've got something to say, and how do you know if it is a poem thing or a fiction thing that you want to say? That's usually fairly easy. Um, I mean, writing a novel usually, well, so far, um, I've had a I've had a story idea primarily, and I don't think it's a story really that gets me going to write. A poem. Often in writing poetry, I really do not know what this is going to be about. But you know, there's a thing. But there is a thing and an impulse and the poetry itch. That's yeah, what I call it. Yeah, and what I really like is um, to let the language um, take over and mess around with whatever intention I had, and so I end up writing something that I hadn't. In- thought I hadn't intended to write. It's far more fun when that happens than when you kind of lock it off and get it done. Whereas writing writing fiction, you may not, of course, know everything about what's going to happen. I certainly never do. But you have to have you have to have a plan. I think inevitably you have to have begun with a big idea. The big idea may or may not be fully, you know, thought through in advance. But unless you've got one, I mean, you're just going to be fumbling around writing your 300 words a day or something and wasting everyone's time, including your own. What about as a reader? So what makes you turn to read poetry or what makes you turn to read fiction? What are you looking for? When I read fiction, I'm looking to be immersed for a long time in something that uh, makes me turn pages and turn them and turn them and turn them. Sometimes there will be poetry that will do that. But mostly poetry for me, you know, it's not that it's always captured in a kind of lyric envelope, a short form envelope. And I do read long form poetry quite a bit, but I read novels. Let's say I read fiction. I read it for the long, longness of it if you like, dramatic qualities for the for the development and and evolution of character. For the gossip. And for the gossip. So I mean a writer like the Italian, wonderful Italian writer Ferrante, whom I adore and am in awe of. I mean the 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 extraordinary pleasure of reading her work is that she is the secret character in her book, in her well in the three anyway. And the way those, the two, the two girls in the Neapolitan series, the way that friendship, that relationship is, is dealt with in the social context of that town, that city, and the politics of it, uh, it's so immensely human. 
and so complex and so intellectual at the same time. I mean, poetry maybe can do that sometimes, but... They, and that's, you know, I think when Not I really say poetry is for the lazy, I I cannot comprehend how it is possible to conceive and create worlds of that sustained richness and depth, I think. You know, that's the thing. When you read something like, you know, Lana Frente, and, you, you know, as you say, I agree with what you've said about it. This is a very different genre, but Neil Stevenson is another oh, person. Yeah. I, I just think, how has one human brain kept this together and built this for me you know and how how blessed am I that I'm allowed to wander around mm. in the fiction I think is is um, such a gift to be able to enter into yeah it's a curse when you're writing it <laughs> wow that's well, that's exactly my position <laughs> <laughs> so it's hard work when you're writing fiction then as well it's horrible oh it's well I wouldn't say it's horrible it can be horrible you know it's really hard work I'm writing a big book at the moment and pretty complicated book and he looks tired listeners yeah I am you have to after a while even even in the early stages when you've got you know a kind of you've got enough to get on with and you've got a plan and maybe you've drawn some pictures and pinned them on the wall and diagrams and stuff but after a while after you've written 300 pages and it's a complicated thing you have to you have to hold it all in your mind somehow and remember stuff and work out how the sequencing of a narrative is sustained. And the longer you're at it and the further on you are with this project, the harder that gets. And by the end of it, I've got to say, in my experience, you know, with longer books, not so much with short ones, which really quite a lot of fun to write and you can do it in a week or so, a few weeks rather, that the long ones are really, really exhausting. And so why do it? Why exhaust yourself in this particular way? <laughs> oh, because I think for me, every time I embark on something big like that, I think, oh no, this time will be different. I've got this one sorted. Let me just ask you, what visual art truly moves you? What do you look at and just wish that you could have that in your house to be your companion every day? Ah, well, interestingly, I don't really look at it and think of it as being in my house every day. I mean, I've got some very nice things in the house, but they're, they're there because they were made by friends, artists who are friends or artists that I've done projects with. So, you know, there's some things I'm, I love greatly and I'm glad to be living amongst works by Ralph Hotary, for example, and Bill Culbert again and a variety of others. But I think when I go out and look at art, as often as not what I'm looking for isn't a kind of desirable object. I'm, I'm looking for something that throws me right off course. Something that really something you don't want to live with every day. Well, no, I would probably wouldn't mind living with them, but you know, they're things that are disturbing. And so, what's in your mind as you say this? Which pictures or sculptures are coming to mind? Do you still love Matisse? Does oh. he still do it for you, or have you moved on? Oh, no, I think I mean, I else? think Matisse is a kind of luxurious, gorgeous artist, he's not someone who's disturbing. I mean, I think the disturbing works I've seen. I mean, one that will be familiar to people is um, a terrific artist, um, now lives in Hong Kong, Yuking Tan. And I remember when I saw a particular work of hers, which is 
a very gorgeous looking work, uh, red masks with tassels hanging down below, which was acquired, which I acquired when I was working at Tapapa for the collection there. And the thing about that work is that it's, at first sight, it's aesthetically arresting immediately. The other thing is that it, it carries an, an immediate signal about, if you like, cultural specificity. It says something about Yuk's Chinese ancestry, but then you look at what the masks are underneath their red covering, and they're the facial shapes of all sorts of other things, semi-human, human. They may or may not, you know, at first glance until you go and find out, they may or may not represent uh, mythical creatures or traditional mask identities. And in a way, the more time you spend with a work whose first impact has been a powerful aesthetic one, the more destabilizing and disturbing and weird it gets. And I had I had one of York's masks in the house. So I was, it's still there. Every so often I put it up. It's not a piece of that big installation. It's a, it's a separate, separate work. And it scares the living daylights out of my grandchildren, for example. Um, and I think that's a thoroughly great thing, you know. Um, it's doing something that is not just pleasing to the eye. Yes, and that almost goes back full circle to the uh, discussion about the the deep pleasure of writing about things that are familiar. There's then sort of the flip side of that is ah. when the familiar is, is defamiliarised. Yeah. So you the, think you know what you're looking at and then you're, you're not looking yeah, at it. Yeah, the uncanny. Yes, um, the uncanny. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, I, I really love it when poetry can do that. I mean, you know, reading... Um, Reading someone who's capable of going on effortlessly, apparently, I mean, uh, John Ashbery, I can read book after book and kind of think, when is this going to finish? But the wonderful thing about it is that it constantly destabilizes your sense of what the words are actually about, why. And the only thing to do is to keep reading and every so often loop back, oh, right, okay, but just keep reading, just keep reading through the book. So one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and I haven't got a good segue to this, but I was just really interested to see that you had spent some time in what was East Pakistan and is now Bangladesh as a young person. So I just wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about Ah. that. What were you doing there? Well, well, that's a piece of a family story, really, that my, my dad never really had any qualifications until, like many young men at the age he was, he went off to the war, Second World War, and began to learn to be an accountant, came back to Blenheim. That's what you always think of when you think of the Second World yeah, War. Yeah, that's right. Went off and trained a lot of accountants. Yeah, well, it did actually, and you know, a lot of other you know, people who were quartermasters and learned how to do that kind of stuff. So Chick came home and had twin boys, me and my brother, or at least his wife, Linda, had them. They had them. And he became the accountant at the Marlborough Express newspaper in Blenheim and had had a taste for travel while he was a soldier. Not an easy way to get a taste for travel, as it turns out. I mean, he didn't have such a great time. Hopefully the next trip will be better. Yeah. Sorry, sorry about your experience. Please yeah. accept our apologies. <laughs> the next war will be better. But he, he, he was restless. 
And I think he always had been as a young man. He'd never really sit, settled down. And my mother was a very restless person too and bored out of her brain. Very, She was a really, really smart woman. And so they decided to get the hell out of there. And I think he pretty much stuck a pin in the gazette of job opportunities. And there was this one way up the top of the Karnafuli River from Chittagong in what's now Bangladesh, remote um, place, and off we went. And, and what was the job that he was going to? He was going to be um, building the financial systems of a paper mill, which was part of a 1950s modernization project in East Pakistan. So there was this paper mill up there, and it was there because it was close to a huge supply of bamboo, which could be chipped and made into paper. And then there was transport because of the river. And so there we were, and Dave and I were seven, and we stayed there for about four years. Just went feral, really. As a tight twosome? As a tight twosome, yeah, we were, really were. And it was an extraordinary place to be. As a kid, it was immensely dangerous often, but it was also just a a fantastic adventure playground every day. And the other thing that was really extraordinary about it was that our mum, Linda, tried to do correspondence school with us for a while and gave up. No wonder you've ended up a poet. (laughs) And so, you know, we didn't learn a lot. And then because there were half a dozen other kids there, the company was persuaded to bring in tutor to set up a little school, so about 12 of us all together. And the first guy, Swiss guy, didn't last long. He went mad and disappeared. And then this marvellous guy turned up, Robert Lupka, a German uh, guy and his wife. He was fantastic. He was a philologist. Stamps? Uh, no. A f- Love? No, no, sorry, not a philologist. A, a language guy, anyway. Not a philologist. Linguist? Well, let's say linguist. Possibly also a stamp collector yeah, and a studier of love. Been. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> um, and he taught us French and German, and that's pretty much it, and Shakespeare. Um, All you need to know. Yeah, that was us. In East And then I Pakistan. went back there in 2005 because I was had a plan to write something about those experiences and what they'd done to me and for me. So... I had a, a, a month or so there and went, found my way back up the river to this place where we'd lived as kids. You weren't actually allowed to go there. It was forbidden territory to go up there. Because? Oh, because of various reasons, political reasons. Um, there was a civil war going on up there with the indigenous people. It was horrible what was happening up there in the Assam Hills. And also because uh, of the pollution of the river which made it a place that, you know, journalists weren't welcome. And so I had to pretend that I wasn't doing anything. I had notebooks and cameras and stuff and managed to get some dodgy travel documents by one means or another and went up there and went back to the house that we lived in as kids, met some very old men in the paper mill who remembered my dad, went into the archive there and saw photographs of him with the silverfish flying there out of the old photo albums. It was an extraordinary experience to go back there. And I think really for me it was, if not the formative experience of my childhood, it was certainly one of them. Well, noticeable, right? You'd notice that. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and there was a lot of stuff that I'd learned there without knowing I had that I then found out I had learned later. And it had to do with privilege, of course, because having come from a, um, a very, very modest small town life, my folks never owned a house or anything, to a situation in which you lived in a household with a gardener and a cook, for example. And we were, we were brats, so you know, we learned that this was our right. I had to go back and confront that young self, and that was interesting. Tell me about, about being a twin. What does it mean to you to be a twin? I think most people imagine that it's kind of a deep empathy or a deep intimacy that twins have. And interestingly, you know, I adore my brother and I like to hope he adores me. He's a great guy. Um, but really we have very little in common apart from, you know, our lives together as kids. We've led extremely different lives. We catch up and have lunch and share our family news. He travels a lot. He and his wife travel a lot. A couple of times a year, they're away overseas. We're very different. We're not identical twins. No, I'm the big sister of twins. Are I'm you? not a twin myself, but ah, my brother and sister right. are twins. And I'm, I'm really fascinated yeah. by twins. I mean, I think it was really, twin really twin. special when we were young. There's no doubt. Really special. And I think we, we formed not just a relationship, but we formed a template for relationship, which is that you're kind of you're kind of intimate with this person and yet not. You know, you you have a a strong sense of being distinct at the same time as a strong sense of being completely inseparable in some way. And so it was very interesting, I think, especially then as we went on to spend time in boarding school in England. You know, we depended on each other a lot through that time. Mm. Yes, it's a really interesting relationship <clears throat> and there's a lot of mystique about it. Whenever anyone says, oh, I have twins or I'm having twins or anything, I always say, what a blessing. Twins yeah. are a blessing because <clears throat> I think people get a lot of, oh, my God, how will you cope? Well, you I, know? Think this, I think most people imagine this kind of, you know, some kind of weird mystic empathy that they read each other's minds and stuff like that. I mean, my brother has a fabulous memory. I have a shit one. Interestingly, he's left-handed. I'm right-handed. His, his, um, his kids are both daughters. I had five sons. You know, we're kind of asynchronous in a way. And yet connected. And yet connected, mm. yeah. Mm. Oh, that's so interesting. Look, thank you so much, Ian. That's oh, been a, just a fascinating conversation. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Would you like to read us something else? Oh, I can if you You've like You've got something. a whole book of selected poems oh. there, so you must have something. Oh, something really short, eh? The, the listeners ones. don't mind. They're happy at home. They're doing the dishes. Oh, are they? All right. You know, they're on the train. Goodness knows what they're doing. Oh, right. On the train this hour of night. This is, I should say before you read, this is your most recent book, which is Selected Poems. Yes, yes. Put out by AUP. Yeah. Yes, and available on their website or wherever you procure good books, including in this very shop, we have some copies. All oh, right. Oh, good. Not secondhand, new ones. Good for you. The last thing in the book is just talking about form. I mean, this is a seven-syllable line. And the interesting thing about that is that it's not prescriptive. It's a way of getting a particular flow into the thing you're writing or saying, which, when it arrives at the end of each line, is, expects another syllable. 
it's it you can't quite make it it's a fairy tale number seven isn't it it is two that's right seven sisters and yeah seven wives and it's and quite short and it it just pours down the page very nicely and it you can write a kind of talking uh, language in it um, but at the same time it's got a little nervousness a little hesitancy through it which I like a lot I'll read a, just a couple of bits from this poem which is it's kind of longish, and it's called Shadow Stands Up. Which, which is taken from something your wife said when she yeah, was yeah. asleep. You yeah, see, she I've was sound asleep. Homework. Oh, you've done it. Oh, good on you. So, okay, Shadow Stands Up. Under the trees in Victoria Park, whose own filigree shadows lie across matted russet leaves on the sodden green turf that the morning's Tai Chi moves barely mar, I see this from the link bus window as we cross the intersection at the bottom of the hill where Kathmandu's winter sail fails to persuade me there's much to gain from any promise of warmth other than what I get when, while rain rattles against the bedroom window at dawn, I press my ear to the smooth skin between Donna's shoulder blades and here in the hollow chamber where she's making dream words a voice that's not the same as hers, say eerily, shadow stands up, it's morning. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ian Weddy. What a pleasure. This has been Ears Wide Open, a podcast that is a project of The Open Book, the world's most beautiful secondhand bookshop at 201 Ponsonby Road in Auckland. If you're in Auckland, come down and visit us and buy a book or two. And if you're not in Auckland, you can look on our website and find our My Book Bag service and we will send books to you wherever you are in New Zealand picked out to your taste.